So what's one of your like indelible uh, memories of Easter? Uh, one that rises to the surface for me, I have a lot, and, and I should think of something more spiritual, but this is the thing that I remember is um, Easter weekend, we used to do these cantatas because my dad's a pastor. Did anybody ever do Easter cantatas back in the day? A couple of you? Yeah. So if you're the son of a pastor, you have to be in the cantata every year. And then around the time you get to 13, 14 years old, on a Friday night, you don't want to go to Easter cantata practice. Like, I don't want to wear bathrobes anymore. I don't want to be in it. I'm done. And so I remember this epic blow up. Worst fight I've ever had with my dad um, in my entire life at about 13 years old, where if you're a teenager, maybe you've experienced this. If you're a parent, maybe you've done this. But where you get so exasperated, your parent just starts going off the rails and doing things that are insane. Like my dad at 13 years old is chasing me around the house with a paddle. And I'm going, I'm not six. You can't paddle me anymore. And literally, he's chasing me, trying to physically take me to Easter cantata practice. And so the thing I remember that weekend, when we celebrate the fact that Jesus rose, it was also the weekend that my dad almost killed me, like literally. <laughs> um, so I have other memories, but I always think of that every Easter for whatever reason. Um, a more serious question, what, have you, what do you feel, because a lot of times it's a feeling or it's an emotion, what do you feel when somebody talks about, not the weekend of Easter, but the message of Easter? Like, what do you feel? For a lot of us um, in the room, or maybe you're uh, online or listening or listening on radio, we're kind of all over the map, but some of us are kind of in the I used to believe, and so maybe in grad school or undergraduate, you had some questions that were surfaced for you that didn't match your Sunday school answers, and now you're in the kind of used to believe category. Some of us are in the um, category of I believe, but I wonder. Like, you haven't abandoned faith, but you have some honest moments you haven't told anybody about of is this really true? And, and I haven't walked away, but, but I'm struggling and my confidence is wavering. And then some of us are in the, I want to believe. Like legitimately, like you lean in to go, if this is true, I, I want to believe it. But there's so many questions that I have. Maybe it's Old Testament and how did Noah build an ark 2,000 years ago and where the dinosaurs go. Um, or maybe you're just in the category of you've had some unanswered prayers and it's ripped your heart out at some level, or, or maybe just some of your expectations have not met your experience. And so you want to believe, but you're not sure if you can ever be intellectually honest and believe. And then some of you, you just have met too many of us. And because of that, you're like, I, I don't, if that's what it's about, I, I don't know if I want to embrace that whole thing. And so my whole point is this. You sh I'm serious. Um, <laughs> You should legitimately be able to ask. In fact, one of the things we say all the time as a church is you should be able to belong before you believe. And so if you're skeptical and cynical and watching, it, watching her in the house, like that's an okay thing. This church should be the safest place in the world to do that. But, but it's legit to ask, hey, is, does any of this matter? Like is this maybe just an effort of coming up with something that makes us feel better when life sucks? Or, or could I ever believe Again, maybe because my faith is wavering and I've lost my faith. Could I ever get it back and believe again? Or, or maybe for some of you, you're in the, I'm leaning in. I want to believe. I don't know if I can. But man, if there's a way, I'm open. And, and here's the thing. I, I don't know. I don't know if you can believe again. I can't answer that question. But here's what I know for a lot of you. You hope so. Like you hope so. Like have you ever thought about this? And we don't think about it a lot. But if there's no Easter weekend, let me take it a step further. If there's no God if it's just physics and biology and chemistry, which, by the way, the scripture is not in opposition to any of those things, if that's kind of what you got, it's not at all. But if that's all we're left with and there's no God, there's no Easter, 
then have you ever thought about the fact that we're really with no hope? Like, like those things where you dream and you desire forgiveness and, and you desire to, to make something better and, and those areas where you want justice and peace, a lot of that doesn't really make sense if there's no God. There, there's really no hope and, and there's really no meaning. In a world governed by just physics and biology and chemistry, you're operating under the belief of determinism, which means everything's been determined for you. Like you thought you chose certain things, you thought you asked her out, but not really. In fact, one of my favorite quotes is Stephen Hawking, interestingly enough, on Easter Sunday. Um, But a brilliant man, brilliant thinker, and and holds to this view of determinism, but he says one time, tongue-in-cheek, and I love this, I noticed that even people who claim everything is predestined um, and that we can do nothing to change it look before they cross the road, right? Because it's just in us. But if if there's no God, there really is no meaning. It's, It's all just been determined, and there's no value like, if, if there's no God, then whatever value that we point to, it's really just value from your perspe- perspective because all we have is ascribed value, which creates problems because every time we appeal to justice outside of ourselves, it's kind of like, well, that's just justice or value from your perspective because if there's no God, where, where do you get this from? Where do you get the idea of value? And if there's no God, the other problem is every time you're moved to help the marginalized, Every time you're moved to help somebody on the fringes of society, every time you're moved to to maybe help somebody who's handicapped, it it contradicts your worldview of natural selection because the strong devour the weak. And so if there really is no God, then there really is no value. Value is just kind of what you want it to be. And then lastly, there's, there's really no you. Because your mind, that place of your emotions and your will and your desires and your dreams, that place you love out of, well, well really, if it's just biology, chemistry, and physics, you're, you're just a body. In fact, let me give you one more, Christopher Hitchens. I'll quote him as well, so I'm on a roll. Christopher Hitchens says this. Um, he actually put it in his book when he was fighting cancer. He got angry with the doctors one day who kept talking about how his body was fighting the cancer. And he just kind of put his fist down and said, I don't have a body. I am a body. Like, all I am is a body. That's all that we're left with. In, in a world where there's no God, there really is no hope. There really is no meaning. There really is no value. And in some level, there really is no you. And that's kind of depressing. Happy Easter, right? <laughs> and, and here's the thing. I, like, my point is not to argue for, for truth with this. Like, may, maybe you're right. Maybe this is true. Something can be uncomfortable and true at the same time. Like uncomfortable or the fact that we don't like it is not an indication of truth. And that applies to everything. So that's not my argument. But, but here's the thing. Here's why I believe that you could potentially believe again if your faith is kind of wavering. Here's why that I believe that for some of you, you could regain your confidence. Even though you haven't walked away, your confidence is teetering. And why some of you, even though you had this not even on your radar, that you could, even today, even this morning, you could believe in, you could trust in for the first time for this reason. What we celebrate on this weekend has nothing to do with most of your objections. What we celebrate on this weekend has nothing to do with maybe your view of the Old Testament and the seeming contradiction and what happened to the dinosaurs. It kind of it supersedes all of that. It has nothing to do with your unanswered or answered prayers as legitimately as legitimate as those are. And it has nothing to do with your experience and whether your experience has matched your expectations. The thing that we celebrate on Easter weekend is a person, but it's also an event, and the event is the resurrection. That everything in Christianity hinges 
on this. In fact, here's what we haven't done a really good job of, of communicating in the church, but it's so important that we know this, is the resurrection is actually what launched Christianity. Before there was a Bible, before there were Christians, before there was a church, before any of that existed, there were thousands, you should study this, there are thousands upon thousands of people who believed in a legitimate bodily resurrection of Jesus from the grave after he had died in the very city where he was put to death. And the movement of Christianity and the Jesus movement began to roll. But all of your objections about the church and about the Bible and about other Christians, as as weighty as those are, you need to know Christianity and the Jesus movement, it doesn't hinge on any of those things. It hinges on the resurrection of Jesus that launched everything before those things even existed. And here's the other thing. When you hear about Christianity being about faith, sometimes we get the idea, well, that's just, it's just an intellectual, like you just need to believe, you just need to have more faith. Here's what you need to know throughout the New Testament, that every time it talks about faith, it's talking about faith in a person, but it's also talking about faith in a historical event. That Christianity is faith in an event that happened in history, the resurrection, and it is not faith in faith. Like faith in faith is, well, if I just have enough faith, it's going to make something true. Well, that doesn't even make sense. Like that's not even intellectual. Like that doesn't hold up. And that's not what Christianity is asking you to believe. It is faith in the fact that something happened in history. People saw it. People wrote it down. People documented it. People preserved it. And people gave their lives for it. And what they gave their lives for was the fact that they believed that Jesus actually rose from the grave. And all of Christianity and why we're here, it actually doesn't hinge on this. This came after the resurrection. It all hinges on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And here's the last thing. Every single one of Jesus' followers Easter weekend, all of his disciples, every single one of them lost faith. None of them believed during Easter weekend after Jesus died. And so if you're here and like, man, my confidence is shattered and and I don't know if I can believe again, here's what you need to know is the same invitation that was available to them is the same invitation that's available to you. If you don't believe or your faith is shattered and your confidence is waning, it was with those initial disciples that we heralded as these incredible heroes in history, all of them lost faith on Easter weekend. And so Luke comes along, and Luke's one of the guys in the Gospels. You know the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, first part of the New Testament. And Luke comes and records what happened on Easter weekend. He starts his whole document that he uh, creatively entitled Luke and just says, I thoroughly investigated all of these things. I interviewed eyewitnesses, and then he sits, sits down to pen it. And I have to imagine that as Luke's writing it, and you'll find out why in a second, he has to be thinking, I, w- I wish I could edit some of these details. Because what Luke writes, what I love about it, it is so honest. It is so real. In fact, what Luke writes about Easter weekend is so real that in the first century context, if you understood it, nobody would believe it. Like it's so real, nobody would believe it because if Luke made up a story and maybe John, another guy who wrote about it, made up a story as many believe or many argue, then they would have had an agenda for making up a story. And their agenda would have been to get people to believe in the Jesus movement after Jesus was dead. The only problem is, you read Luke's account, you read John's account, 
every single one of the guys who are supposed to be leading the movement after Jesus is dead are all discredited. They all look like fools. They all look like guys that nobody's going to follow after Easter weekend. They're all afraid. They're all cowering. They all lost faith. And every single one of them is ignorant to even the possibility of a resurrection on Easter weekend. Not only that, Luke writes about the fact that several of the eyewitnesses that he cites, they weren't even credible in the first century. If you were in Jerusalem, it took the legs out from under their story. And then last thing, I don't know if you've ever thought about this, if somebody was going to make up a story, if if Luke was going to make it up, if John was going to make it up and create this hoax about a resurrection so they could get people to believe this message after the Easter weekend, then they would have had something to gain. Like any prophet of God in history that's come down from a mountain and uh, supposedly God has talked to them, they always walk away with a new religion that usually causes them to benefit in one of these three ways or all of these three ways, i.e. David Koresh. You know what I'm talking about? Like every time somebody gets a God told me and a new religion is formed, usually they're going to make some money off of it. Usually, sexually, it's, it's going to work out well for the leader, and they're going to gain some power from it. Here's what you need to consider. If Luke or John made this up, none of these things, none of these things benefited them. Nobody gained any money. They were nomads. They had nothing in regard to wealth. Sex, they weren't getting any. They were all marginalized in culture. They were all seen as, as just the, this fringe group. And nobody took them seriously. People hunted them down and tried to t- take their lives. And by the way, Jesus' sexual ethic was so narrow. If Luke's making up a story like, Luke, go find another religion that is much more wide open than the Jesus movement because Jesus' teachings about sexual ethic is very different than any other religion in the world. And then power, they gain no power. We're like, well, they became the official religion of Rome. Not until 300 AD. They were hunted down. They had no leverage. They had no influence. They had no standing in culture whatsoever. And by the way, Jesus' whole definition of power was, hey, you want to be great? Then you need to serve everybody. You need to give up your life. You need to sacrifice for the sake of others. So Luke, John, they weren't benefiting in any of these ways. In fact, Luke is so honest with his account If we really understood first century context, nobody in Jerusalem would have believed it. And it would have never survived the first century unless it happened. And so Luke sits down and he he writes this account. And if you've got a smartphone, you can actually go to the iTunes store and for free download Centerpoint Church Florida app if you want to follow along. Um, Just Centerpoint Church Florida. And then you can go to media and resources on there and follow along. Or if you have a Bible... You can look along, you can check it out on the screen. But Luke sits down, he's like, all right, I'm just going to write what happened. And I don't know that anybody is going to believe this. And so he says in Luke 24, verse 1, he starts off his account this way. On the first day of the week, Jesus was sent to trial on Friday. He's crucified. This is the end of Easter weekend on Sunday. The first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women, while the guys were cowering, by the way, the women took the spices they had prepared And they went to the tomb. And this is obvious, but you just have to bring it out. They went to the tomb because they thought Jesus was dead. And they assumed that Jesus would do what dead people generally do. Stay dead. And so the women show up, and this is so interesting. They show up, and as you're about to find out in a second, they don't even think that there's the possibility that maybe Jesus rose from the grave. They're completely ignorant of it. And as Luke is writing this, he's like, oh, I hate to say this. Women were the first to get to an empty tomb. 
Nobody's going to believe this. Because here's what Luke knew. That women in the first century were not considered credible witnesses. It's crazy, but that's the archaic first century. They wouldn't allow women to be witnesses in, in a court. So they, they had no standing whatsoever. And so as Luke's writing this, it takes the legs out from under his story. Nobody is going to believe this. So Luke, why in the world would you write that women were the first to get to the empty tomb if you want this movement to be believed by people in Jerusalem? And Luke's like, because that's what happened. I, I wouldn't, this is stupid fiction. Nobody will believe it. The women get to the tomb. In verse 2, they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. And in verse 3, when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. And this, just real quick, bears noting is that they didn't have a stone in front of the tomb because they were afraid of Jesus getting out. Nobody thought about that. They had a, they had a stone there because they were afraid of the disciples getting in. And so all of these religious leaders and political leaders got together because these disciples threatened the balance of power between Jewish and Roman authorities. They go, okay, listen, we cannot have this thing go forward any longer. We can't have them going, somehow moving this two-ton stone, stealing the body, and then creating a hoax of a resurrection so people get to believe this. So put a stone in the way, and we limit all of that possibility. But here's the only thing. If the disciples would have gone and stolen that body, they would have been hunted down and killed. And here's what you need to know. Just read the stories. The disciples were not willing to give their lives for Jesus while Jesus was alive. They weren't going to give their lives for Jesus after Jesus was dead. Like, do you know the story of Peter, Easter weekend, after Jesus is taken by Roman guards? A, a, a little elementary school-age girl comes to him and asks, hey, do you know Jesus? And in Aramaic, he starts dropping explicatives, Peter does, to go, no, I don't even know him. He's that afraid. Mark, one of my favorite stories, can't tell Easter without Mark. Mark is in the garden the night that Jesus is betrayed and the soldiers come. And Mark is so afraid that he runs out of the garden naked. Like how fearful do you have to be for it to trump that level of embarrassment? I would just been like, kill me, all right? I'll die. I'll be a first martyr. Mark runs out of the garden naked. All of the religious and political leaders should have looked at the scene on Easter weekend and gone, hey, just save taxpayer money. We do not need a stone there. There is no way that they're going to risk their lives to go steal the body of Jesus. They wouldn't do that while Jesus was alive. And then the other thing is, last thing on this is, it would have been pointless. One of the things that you need to know about Jesus' three years of ministry is that every single time Jesus asked his followers to believe in him, not in his teachings. Over and over again, Jesus would go, hey, listen, I'm the bread of life. I'm the way, I'm the truth, and I'm the life. I am the, like me, Peter, look at me. I am the resurrection and the life. Unlike any other world religion, Jesus was the religion. Jesus was the movement. Jesus was the teachings. He didn't ask them to believe in some teachings to hand off. He asked every single one of them to believe in him. And so when he died, the movement died with him. When he died, there was no teachings to move forward. All of it was for naught because Jesus put himself at the center of it all. And so there is no way that they were going to steal Jesus' body on Easter weekend. And there would have been no reason to steal Jesus' body on Easter weekend. And so in verse 4, Luke records the fact that while they were wondering about all of this, this is the women who got to the tomb, while they were wondering about this, after seeing an empty tomb and a stone rolled away, the women who got there first did not even think about the fact that maybe Jesus rose from the dead. And at this point, all of their faith was gone. They did not believe. 
And so while they were wondering about all of this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. And then verse 5, it says, and in their fright, because they were scared to death, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground. And the men said to them, why do you look for the living among the dead? They're like rhetorical question, because he's dead. We saw him die. He was placed in this tomb. And then verse 6, these famous words, these men who were there say to the women who show up at the tomb, he is not here. He's risen. Remember how he told you I was still with you in Galilee? Hey, hey, ladies, don't you remember he actually talked about this and predicted this? And they're like, uh, no. We, we don't remember that. In fact, Mary Magdalene, Mary Magdalene is one of the women who are there, and she's thinking, you know, what we remember is that day that he met the woman on the steps of the temple, and she had been caught in adultery, and Jesus says the famous words to her, hey, listen, I don't condemn you. Now leave your life of sin. And Mary Magdalene is like, I, I had prostitution in my background, and so that moment meant everything for me because it meant there was hope. And they're like, and the other thing we remember is that day when Lazarus, Jesus' best friend, dies, and then Jesus decides not to show up for several days. John records it in John 11. We don't really know why, but finally Jesus gets there, and Lazarus is already dead. He's already been put in a tomb, and Jesus comes in this dramatic fashion and says to everybody who's standing there, hey, listen, I am, hey, guys, everybody look at me, I am the resurrection and the life. Lazarus stopped being dead, and Lazarus came back back to life. And in that moment, we thought, okay, the game has changed. He really is the Messiah. He really is going to provide hope. There really is more than just this life. And now he's dead. And we're at his tomb because we're paying respects to another dead wannabe Messiah, but it is all over for us. And our hope and our dreams and our desire for something more is all gone. And so these guys are with these women. It's like, oh, but don't, don't you remember what he told you while you were in Galilee? And then these guys talking to the women at the tomb basically quote what Jesus said just a short time before this. And, and they say this in verse 7. Jesus said that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful man to be crucified and on the third day be raised again. And then I love this in verse 8. This is the women. And then they remembered his words. Like, oh, dang, we do remember we do remember. He, he did say, we, we totally lost sight of that over Easter weekend, but I remember we were in Galilee, and he, ah, we completely forgot. Weren't even thinking about a resurrection. Wasn't even on their radar. None of Jesus' followers were boldly standing by the tomb on Easter weekend going, any moment now. N nobody was sitting there on Friday going, okay, you guys can talk all you want on Sunday. It's about to go down. Nobody even thinks about it. And so the women in verse 9 came back from the tomb, and they told all these things to the 11 and all the others in verse 10. Mary Magdalene was there, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the others with them who told this to the apostles. You're like, Luke, that's a lot of information. Because information is an invitation into investigation. And Luke's like, why don't you go fact check me? Everybody in Jerusalem, go look, go look it up. And then verse 11, he says this, but they did not believe the women because their words seemed to them like nonsense. And I don't know what the guys are thinking because I know how guys can be though, but they may have showed up to go, all due respect, ladies, historically, you have trouble with directions sometimes. 
Is it possible you took a right turn and you ended up at the wrong tomb? I'm just saying. Is it possible that happened? Or, or I'm terrible at directions. I have no room to talk. But it, uh, ladies, come on. You, you're, you're frantic. You're hysterical. This is what you want to have happened. Your hearts have been ripped out. I, like emotion is kind of playing on you. But there's no way. There's no way Jesus is not in that tomb. And I don't know if this is encouraging for you or not, but every single one of Jesus' followers, the people that we heralded and the people that we lift up, all of them in this moment think it is nonsense. And all of them had lost faith. Like all of the guys that monuments have been built after and and these great things have been erected in their name and in their memory, every single one of those people on that weekend were cowering and were running and were afraid and all of them lost belief. So verse 12 is so powerful as Luke's recording it. Peter, however, got up and ran to the tomb. And bending over, he saw the strips of linen lying by themselves. And he went away, wondering to himself, what happened? And then John records that he gets to the tomb in his his gospel, because he's with Peter, and he says that he went in, and the Greek word that he uses is that John scrutinized the tomb. And John actually, after going into the tomb, walked away, and it says that he actually did believe. But then Peter and John left, and John says this. They still weren't getting the whole deal, because in John 29, it says, they still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. And Luke's like, nobody's going to follow these guys. Nobody's going to believe this. And then in Luke 24, and you can read it for yourself, the guys go back to this little living room, and and everybody is cowering. Everybody's afraid. In fact, he records in those verses that they had locked themselves into this room for fear of the Jews. And all of them are there. And they've even seen an empty tomb. And most of them are still absolutely clueless and don't even have on their radar that maybe Jesus has risen again. And these are the guys that are going to take the movement forward. And it is not until Luke records it in Luke 24 later on. It is not until they're at a table in that living room and Jesus shows up out of nowhere, which should have been their first clue. And he sits down with them at a table. And it says in Luke 24 that he begins to break bread with all of these guys who are still scared to death. And as he breaks bread, he shows these guys, he shows all of them who he had been with some of them for three years, the wounds in his wrist. And it's not until that moment, in fact, Luke 24, 45, it says, and their minds were opened to the scriptures. And it's not until this moment that they finally come to the place, all of these heroes of the faith, to believe again. And we know they believed again. Because right after this, they go into the streets of Jerusalem, the very streets where there's all of these people who actually helped crucify Jesus, and these guys who are cowering to elementary school-age girls, these guys who were so afraid, begin to go into the streets of Jerusalem, and they do not talk about Jesus' teachings. They talk about the fact that they had seen something, that Jesus was actually alive, that Jesus was actually walking around. They basically stare into the faces of the people who helped crucify him and say, listen, you guys did it. Jesus is alive. 
alive. You need to repent because, come on, what do you have to be afraid of or scared of once your Savior has defeated death and walked out of a tomb alive? And so Acts records it this way. Their message was God raised Jesus to life, and we are witnesses. It's in the city. If you don't believe us, go produce a body. Go to the tomb and prove us wrong. Fact check us. We are witnesses of this fact that Jesus is alive. And we cannot shut up about it. And what you should consider is every single one of these guys who are afraid and running and cowering, every single one of them, all of those represented by the narratives of Easter weekend, every single one of them gave their lives up ultimately. Not for what they believed. People do that every day all over the world. They gave up their lives for what they say they saw, a resurrected Jesus. In fact, one of the the most powerful examples is Thomas. And even if you haven't been around the church, you know Thomas infamously is doubting Thomas. And Thomas gets to the end of his life, and he is confronted and asked to recant of the fact that he saw Jesus rise from the grave, that he saw Jesus alive. And doubting Thomas will not recant. And he has a spear driven through him, and he gives up his life not for what Jesus taught but for what he saw. And it's the only explanation for why we're here. It's the only explanation for why 2,000 years later we're gathering in the name of a Jewish carpenter from Nazareth across every continent and every language and every socioeconomic status. And it wasn't because he was eloquent and it wasn't because of his teaching and it wasn't because of the golden rule. It was because at the end of Easter weekend he walked out of a grave alive and he defeated death and it validated everything that he said about his life and about his death and the movement of Christianity, the movement of Jesus followers began to spread and dominate the globe. And then 20 years later, a guy by the name of Paul comes along and Paul is a guy that you may know of that tried to stamp out Christianity, a guy that tried to end the Jesus movement. He oversaw the death of Christians and then became one. And in 55 AD, an almost no secular scholar will dispute this. He writes this letter, and I want to end with this. And he says in 1 Corinthians 15, Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel, the good news that I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel, this good news, the fact that Jesus is alive, that you are saved if you hold firmly to the word that I preach to you. Otherwise, you've believed in vain. Verse 17, he actually says that if there is no resurrection of Christ, then then your faith is futile. It doesn't make sense. There's nothing to it. You're still in your sins. In fact, you you have no hope. You have no meaning. You, You have no value. There really is no you if this isn't true. And then he says in verse 3, For what I received, I passed on to you as a first importance, and here it is, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried because he was dead, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, and Paul's like, I believe, I I interviewed these guys, I spent years with them, and then he appeared to the twelve. And after that, he appeared to more than 500 at one time of the brothers and sisters, most of whom are still living. Luke's like, go ask them. And then he says, verse 7, and then he appeared to James, the brother of Jesus. I don't have time, but what would, it, what, would, what would your brother or sister have to do to convince you that he was the son of God? James thought his brother was a nut job, the front side of Easter weekend, believed his brother was the Messiah on the back side of weekend. The only thing that convinced your brother or sister that you were the Messiah was if you died and brought yourself back to life. 
James believed, and then he appeared to the apostles. And last of all, verse 8, this is so powerful. Paul's like, he appeared to me as to one abnormally born. And what he means by that weird statement is just this, that because of my baggage and my past, I don't even deserve to be included in this. And then he says in verse 9, for I am the least of all the apostles. Do you know how much baggage I'm carrying around? And I do not even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. Like, yeah, all of these guys ran and all of them cowered. But they didn't do what I did. And the fact that God would invite me into a relationship with him through Jesus because of what happened in history despite my baggage is unbelievable. And Paul's whole point is just this. That if Jesus really walked out of a grave alive, which he believed just a few years later, that his resurrection validated everything that Jesus said about life and about his life. It means that, that if a guy can predict, come on, his own death and resurrection and pull it off, then you can trust whatever that guy says. And Paul's like, I believe this happened in history, which validates everything, and it's why. It's why you can believe again despite your objections, despite your questions, despite your unanswered prayers, because it all hinges on an event that happened in history that I think is almost indisputable if you really dig into it. And Paul's going, this happened, Christ was resurrected, and so it validates everything he said about life. And come on, it validates everything he said about your life and about what's possible. It means if Jesus really rose again, I just want to wrap our minds around this as we conclude. It means wherever you are and whatever objections you came in with and whatever those causes are for your faith to kind of wane and be weak, you can in this moment believe again that death is not the end. It means that if Jesus rose from the grave, that when he said, I am the resurrection and the life, it means there is resurrection and there is life. It means that those who've trusted Christ, when they die, you're going to see them again. And it means that your faith is not in vain. It means if Jesus really did walk out of the grave alive, when Paul famously wrote in this letter that we, guys, we're just foreigners and we're just strangers here on planet earth. This is not our home. It means that if Jesus really did pull this off, that one day as Revelation records, Jesus really is going to come back. Jesus is going to come back when the last trumpet sounds and the dead are going to be raised from the jaws of death and everything is going to change because he defeated death and he defeated this thing that says this life is all that there is and there is more, there is hope. Jesus walked into the octagon of death and he ripped away the keys of death and hell and he is alive and Paul's like, it changes everything. It means that you can believe again. That death is not the end. And it's not because your belief is going to make something true. It's because it happened in history. And if you're in a place where your confidence is waning, I'm telling you, you are invited back and you can believe again because what happened in history. And I just want to punctuate this. Death is not the end, which means Jesus is going to have the final say over everything. Not your cancer. Not Alzheimer's. Not your mental illness. Not the diagnosis. But Jesus, your resurrected Savior, will have the final say over everything because he defeated death in history, and death is not the end. And it means you can believe again that there's more to this life, that every time you have that thing rise up inside of you where you're going, man, is this, does, this, does this even matter? 
I wonder if, if any of this is real. When you have that thing that rises up of it shouldn't be this way, that this cannot be all that there is. When your dream is dying, when you start to look at hey, if there's a God who exists, then God would, would intervene and do something different in my circumstances, and I don't understand this. And there's just this overwhelming feeling. You know what I talk, I'm talking about? Where you just get to a place to go, there has got to be more than what I'm experiencing in this moment. And if Jesus walked out of a grave alive, your resurrected Savior, says I know and there is eternity has been placed in your heart you were created for more and one day you're going to experience the more this is not all there is every tear is going to be wiped away every injustice is going to be made right every dream is going to be made fulfilled and you are going to physically experience the more that you were created for and this is not all there is and you can believe again that your hope is not in vain. That when you sacrifice, that when you pray, that when you step out to, to give and to help the marginalized, when you carry the baton of this extraordinary message that Jesus is alive and he's offering forgiveness and hope and you risk and you move out to be bold, it means it matters and it means it's not in vain and it means it's shaping eternity and God is using it. And one day you're gonna experience the fulfillment of the fact that what you do now is having ripple effects forever and it is not in vain. And last thing, you can believe again. If Jesus walked out of a grave alive, that he is gonna redeem every hurt. Come on, if Jesus can resurrect himself, he can resurrect any marriage. He can resurrect any dream. He can resurrect any health issue. And even if he doesn't, it means he's good. And it means he will work all things for your good and for his glory, even when my heart is being ripped out and even when I don't understand it. Because come on, if he can take a crucifixion and turn it into a resurrection, if he can take the epicenter of the darkest moment in history and turn it into the epicenter of his greatest miracle in history, if Jesus is alive, come on, he can take every bit of your chaos and turn it into peace. He can take every bit of your hurt and turn it into power for whatever he wants to do in your life. And you don't have to understand him. You just need to know it's true from a God who walked out of a grave alive. And come on, he can take every bit of your weakness, whatever your weakness is, and he can turn it into something incredible. He can turn it into victory and do more than you can ever imagine. And it means that when Paul wrote to a group of Romans under Nero who were afraid for their lives, when he wrote these famous words, God works all things together for good to those who love him and for those who are called according to his purpose. It means that Paul knew what he was talking about. It means that it is true. It means the resurrection changes our perspective on everything, whether our circumstances change or not. And one day he will redeem every single hurt and he will right every single wrong. And then lastly, I'm gonna close with this. It, it means for some of you, and this is why you're here unbeknownst to you. It's why you're watching, it's why you're listening, is that right now in this moment, you can believe for the first time. That if this really did happen in history, and this is the thing you need to grapple with, not your unanswered prayers and not your questions about the scripture, but did Jesus really rise from the dead? 
Because if that happened, you can even in this moment bring all your questions and objections unanswered and still be intellectually honest because if somebody can die and come back to life, you can trust them. And so right now you can believe for the first time that there really is forgiveness for your past. And you really can believe that there is peace for whatever baggage you brought in here for your present and there really is hope for your future. And I don't know a lot of you, most of you, but I know at some level that's what you're searching for. Because the God who created you, who you haven't believed in up into this moment, placed those desires in your heart. And despite your resistance up until this moment, he is inviting you into a relationship with him. And for some of you, your search is over. And here's what you need to know. God is not angry with you. God has been waiting patiently for you. The church hasn't modeled this very well at times. We, we haven't expressed this very well at times, but the scripture says that God's kindness leads us to repentance and there is no sin, listen to me, and there is no guilt and there is no dysfunction that can push you beyond the reach of his love and his invitation to personal relationship right now in this moment. So I wanna give some of you the opportunity to believe in and to trust in for the very first time. And the impossibility that you struggle with is not the problem, it's the point. Because it validated his impossible and miraculous invitation of salvation. Come on, if you were gonna ever get forgiveness and hope and new life, a God of the universe would have to do something miraculous and this is it. He went to a cross and he knew every single one of your sins. He knew every single bit of your dysfunction. He knew every lie. He knew that business trip. He knew the fact that you walked out. He knew about every single inconsistency and he went to a cross, this is crazy, and he knew you individually somehow and he knew your sins and even though he knew you he died for you anyway and when he went to the cross and then walked out of a grave alive it means he validated everything he said about his death that on the cross he was taking every bit of your shame and on the cross he was taking every bit of your guilt and on the cross he was taking every bit of your dysfunction and your rap sheet is not going to beat the rap sheet of Paul who had murder in his background Jesus on the cross took all of it so that you would not have to carry it any longer and because he's alive it means when he walked out of the grave that he did exactly what he said he canceled my debt he canceled your debt the check didn't bounce and when he walked out it is finished was written across all of humanity and all you have to do is believe. And so as we end, I'm gonna share these last two verses. And for some of you, you've heard this 100 times, but this is the moment that Jesus has been doing for 2,000 years, Luke 24, 45. He is opening your minds to the scriptures. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, Jesus, and whoever believes in, whoever trusts in, it's so simple that people stumble over it. You're not ever gonna be able to earn it and you're not ever gonna be able to do anything to keep it. Believes in, trust in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. It only requires belief in this moment. God has removed every obstacle to you having relationship with him, including your sin. The only thing left is your yes to say, I believe. And then John says this, and I just want you to get this, because God did not send Jesus into the world to condemn the world or to condemn you, but to save the world through Jesus. So right now, for some of you, I wanna give you the opportunity to believe in and to trust in for the first time. 
And so if you're online or if you're in the house, would you bow your head and close your eyes with me just out of respect to other people who are around where God is working in their life and this is a defining, defining moment for them. And if this is that point where you are believing in and trusting in for the first time, all you need to do is pray this prayer. It's not the prayer that saves you, but it's your declaration of trust. And you can say it in your own heart and mind after me right now. Jesus, I believe you're God. I believe you died on the cross for me. I believe you rose again. And right now I am trusting you and what you've done for me. Jesus, save me and forgive me. And one more time and we're gonna be done. If this is you and this is that moment for you for the first time, you believe in and trust in and you can come with all of your questions. You just pray this prayer after me in your own heart and mind. Jesus, I believe that you're God. I believe that you died for all of my sin. I believe that you rose again. And right now I'm trusting in you. Jesus, forgive me. Jesus, save me. With heads bowed and eyes closed, if that was you today, would you just lift up your hand to say for the first time, I believed in, I trusted in Jesus as my savior. Anywhere in the house, you just lift up your hand and say, that's me in this moment. And today for the first time, I have believed in and trusted in. Awesome. Just lift, keep your hand up for just a second. And we want to put a card in your hand if this is your day and this is the moment where you've trusted in Christ. One more time, anybody else in the house with nobody looking around would just say, this is the moment for me where I believed in and trusted in. For some of you, this is the moment to, to reignite your journey. And so wherever you're at, maybe you're a longtime follower of Jesus, or maybe you began a relationship with Jesus in this moment. Lastly, I just want to encourage you to take a step today. I want to encourage you to go to one of the connect points. If that next step is baptism, which doesn't save you, it doesn't make you more spiritual, but Jesus says it's that first act of trust to say, if you're legit about this, I want to go public through baptism, that God has changed my life and I've placed my trust in him. So today, if that's your step, you need to take it before you leave. Go to connect point, go meet some of our pastors in the after party and be willing to just courageously take that step. For others of you, it's to get into next steps, which happens every Sunday at 1030, to get connected, to grow in a local gathering, a local church, to begin to find a community of people. But do not leave if God is doing something in you without taking a step. And we wanna personally meet you where you are. And for others of you, this is the moment. And Jesus, we thank you that that for some of us, our hope, our confidence has been renewed, not because somehow we mustered up faith, but because in this moment, you have pointed us back to what is undeniable in history. And it continues to echo right now all over the globe that you really did die and you really did come back to life. And we place our faith in you and we place our faith in what you did in history. And as we end, we celebrate not us, thankfully. We celebrate what you have done for us regardless of how messed up we are. We wanna lift up your name that your death and your resurrection has provided hope for us for all of eternity. And we pray this in your incredible name, the name of Jesus, amen.